Welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is twice best-selling author, Tony J. Hughes. He's a record-breaking salesperson from the real world. He's the most read person on business-to-business sales on LinkedIn. He's been published by the American Management Association and HarperCollins. And it's an absolute delight to have you here today, Tony. Thank you for coming. Marcus, thanks for inviting me on, and uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking. I was in your beautiful part of the world just the weekend before last. I visited a client in London I'm working with, and I took the opportunity to go to the Goodwood Revival race meeting, which absolutely blew my mind. (laughs) Excellent. Tony, can you take us through your journey to how you got to where you are today so that people get a sense of your expertise and your experience in sales? Yeah, and I'll certainly keep it brief, Marcus. Um, 35 years of sales and sales leadership, the last 12 years of my corporate life, I ran the Asia-Pacific region for North American multinational tech companies. I have set records both as an individual salesperson and in running regions uh, that have never been broken. Seven years ago, I left the corporate world and I decided to go out on my own doing sales enablement consulting. And I work with some of the biggest companies in the world, companies such as Salesforce, the big CRM company, Flight Center Travel Group is another global client where I work you know, with their teams, North America, Asia, Europe, South Africa. I was just in India the week before last. So I do a lot of work with organizations to fix, I guess, three key problems that people suffer from. The first is not enough sales pipeline. I find that's the number one issue that sales leaders believe their teams have. The second thing I work on is how can people increase the conversion rates of qualified deals that they've decided to pursue, so to up deal win rates. And then the third problem domain I help with is for retaining and growing existing clients. So that's really the main things I do. My latest book, Combo Prospecting, is all about solving that top of funnel problem. And my first book, The Joshua Principle, was written as a true story novel and it deals with how do you sell more strategically and win complex opportunities. Well, all three of those topics are close to my heart. In my experience, when people come and tell me that they're concerned about the weak pipeline, it's almost never down to levels of activity because what they tend to do is yell and scream at their people and say, you've got to make more calls. And they up the activity rate, but the results don't improve. Why is that? <laughs> I hope you don't mind. That's actually big, big to differ. We know that being the busy fool is not a smart thing to do. So high levels of ineffective activity is just silly. But the thing I find is that around the world, people have bought into this social selling schlock lie that uh, you can just endlessly groom your LinkedIn profile and the world will be the path to your door. And that narcissistically gazing into your online profile, you know, is somehow doing research or prospecting. Now, I'm a fan of the concept of social selling, but it really needs to occur at a couple of dimensions. That the first reason it's important to have a good, solid online profile is not because you're going to get lots of leads out of it. It's important because three quarters of people that you run outreach to that are thinking of responding to you will go and have a look at your LinkedIn profile. And you've got to ask yourself the question, what do they see when they find me in LinkedIn? Do I look like a lightweight, low-level seller? Or do I look someone that's got some insights that's worth having a meeting with that can have a business conversation? 
I'm a big believer. I've got myself, as we record this, more than 320,000 followers in LinkedIn, 20,000 first-degree connections. I've had huge results out of LinkedIn myself, but it's crazy for people to, to start neglecting the phone and just thinking they can be passive in LinkedIn and the buyers will come to them. You get a little bit of that activity, but at the end of the day, if you're a business development person, you've got to find a way to positively break into someone's day and have a conversation that's relevant to them. And you need to do that in a way that deals with the problems that no one that, that doesn't know you yet is lonely and bored and looking for a new friend. They're all busy and stressed at home. No one's looking for another seller in their life. No one's looking for someone to visit them and buy them coffee. No one wants more supplies. They want less. So the reality is you've got to find a way to be relevant. And we've only got seven seconds. The best it gets for anybody is when you interrupt someone's day and start a conversation and they don't know you yet, it can happen within a second and a half. But the best it gets is in seven seconds, they're either starting to lean in or they're thinking, how do I get off the phone? You know, how in the world do I get out of here? So, so the reality is we've got to up activity, but we've got to do it intelligently. And what I find is people half ask their way through a sales day doing very little and they try and rationalize it away and tell their boss that they're doing enough and they're not. And anybody that needs to build funnel in my view, needs to be doing 30 to 50 outbound, what I call combos a day, where they phone, leave a voicemail, send an email. That's a basic triple. And they do that within 90 seconds. And that approach pattern interrupts people's bias toward or propensity to just ignore people they don't know. And if you want to up your game, you add a text message, you send an email, you send a fax if you want to get that dinosaur fax machine to spring to life in reception and get a fax put on someone's desk. You've got to find a way to break through. So it's really at two dimensions. One is not enough activity, but then it needs to be the right activity. So if people are just going at people in one channel alone, they will not succeed. So phone on its own isn't enough. Email on its own isn't enough. Social on its own isn't enough. So I know sales managers yell at their people to do more, but they need to be coaches and leaders, schedule at least three 90-minute sessions a week with their teams all together, having a go, laughing, failing together, and then go and celebrate the successes afterwards. I have to say I agree. I think one of the big mistakes is putting all of your eggs in one basket. I absolutely buy into the myth around social selling being the only way and generally that's people who have skin in the game to sell a program around social selling, saying that cold calling is dead, content is dead, whatever they happen to push. And as a result of that, I think there are some really bad beliefs out there and some terrible behaviors as well in terms of prospecting, because I seem to recall seeing some research, I think it was from CSO Insights, that something like 94% of CEOs hate receiving a bad call, but 86% love receiving a good one. And the problem is that more often than not, the calls are atrocious because they're selfish. They're focused on showing photos of the ugly kids, why I think you should buy from me, rather than trying to enter the conversation that the prospect is already having, entering into their world. Why is it that so few salespeople actually manage to create that type of engagement in the first few seconds with their patent interrupt and then subsequently 
with their brief introduction as to the purpose of the call. Well, Marcus, you really nailed it. The first big mistake people make is they call up and they talk about themselves. No one's interested in us or our product or our service or solution. They're only interested in themselves and their opportunity for better results. So there's three expectations that buyers have today. It'd be very easy for anybody in selling to feel like these expectations are unreasonable, but they're real. And I'll explain at the end of saying what the three are, why it's reasonable for the seller to have the expectation. The expectations are these. The first thing is they expect us to know them. Then they expect us to personalize and tailor information based on knowing them. And the third thing is they expect us to anticipate what would be important to them. Right. So when you call someone that you don't even know before you've ever got to ask them one question, they nevertheless expect you to know them and they want you to know them at three levels. So this is a sub three points on the first one. They expect you to know their industry their industry, their company, and then them in their role. So if you're calling the CFO of a manufacturing business, they expect you to understand what matters to a CFO in a manufacturing business. They expect you to know what's going on in the industry. They expect you to be aware of what they're doing as a company. And then based on that, you personalize and tailor and anticipate what would be important. So unless you understand ideal customer profiles, And then as a subset of that, understand the buyer personas that you sell to, what matters to those people, how they're typically measured in their roles, you've kind of got a very low probability of being able to create the right conversation. So sales leaders listening to this, stop yelling at your people and start enabling them properly. Make sure they all know what ideal customer profile looks like, firmographics, technographics, mode of growth, other types of technologies, whatever they are. Then make sure they understand the buyer personas they've got to sell to. And you know you need to do the heavy lifting, work with your marketing team to create these. And then once your buyers have got that, they can then do pragmatic research instead of boiling the ocean types of research where they can quickly have a look at someone's profile and they can drive the right kind of conversation. So when we spring out of the bushes you know, and contact somebody when we're prospecting, There's some things we need to do based on that pre-work, and that is we need to reference a common connection. So if I was calling Mary, hey, Mary, I was talking to Marcus last week, and he thought it would make sense for you and I to have a chat. If you don't have a common connection, and by the way, you need to check with this person, in this case, you, Marcus, that, that it is okay that I reference you in calling Mary. But if you don't have a common connection, then you play back some kind of attribute or trigger event. So, you know, you say, hey, hey, Mary. I noticed that the company just made a recent acquisition and that you're growing at 33%. I wanted to get together because I've got some ideas on how you could, and then you state a potential benefit for them. And then you say, and in a way that, and then you have like a secondary double-edged sword. You're not just banking on one thing. So if someone was wanting to get to me and they did an e-learning platform and they decided they were trying to get to this bizarre cottage industry I'm part of that you and I are part <laughs> of, Marcus. <laughs> One man bands sales enablement consultants. I know you work very um, closely with Sandler, who's an awesome organization. But if someone was wanting to sell me some e-learning platform so I could get some of my IP online, you know what they would say is, hey, Tony, I was talking to Marcus in London last week. He thought it would make sense for you and I to have a conversation. I've got some ideas on how you can actually monetize your IP and do it in a way that gets you away from all of the time and trouble for money. When can we find 20 minutes? 
Because the reality is, is I would like to monetize my IP. I would like to get away from all of the time for travel. I literally nearly dropped dead Christmas time just gone. I had a 99% blockage in my heart that I didn't know about. I was in a part of the heart that I call the Widowmaker Zone. <laughs> but okay. I haven't felt right last year. I'm fit. You know, I ride over 100 kilometers a week on a bike. I look like I'm a healthy guy, but I was a candidate for those people that just dropped dead. But my big epiphany was I need to dial it back. And I have. I've dramatically reduced the level of activity in social media in the last, last nine months since that's happened. But you talk to what the person wants, right? So understand your ideal customer profile and buyer personas. Then you can do pragmatic research where you look for an attribute or a trigger event that's happened. New people into roles is an amazing trigger event because every new senior person into a role is looking to affect change. They're looking for some early wins. They want to make their new boss feel good about hiring them into the role. Whereas people that have been in a role for a very long time are very resistant to change. They just see innovation or change as a whole lot of work and risk. So that's kind of the key to driving good outbound conversations. And, you know, you can have that conversation within 60 seconds. Senior people really like it when someone is brief and gets to the point and is relevant. Absolutely. A couple of useful tips that I've picked up along the way. One is if you're going to sell to specific job functions, look at the recruitment pages. Look Mm. at what they're measured on. Look at who they report to. Look at the kind of targets that they carry. And look at the trajectory that people have taken to get to where they are. So you get an an insight. You want to try and, and get into their skin and be able to understand who they are and what their day looks like so that when you call them, you are delivering value. You're not just another interruption to their day, which they will resent. Another really useful tip is we have a tool called CAPS. If anybody wants it, then ping me an email at the end, mcalkiatsandler.com. And CAPS enables you to very clearly define not only who your ideal target prospect is by characteristics, alternatives, pains and payoffs and symptoms, but use that framework in order to develop your 30-second commercial to enter the conversation that your prospect is already having. And as Tony said, you've got to really understand who your buyer is. Otherwise, you're just throwing noise at them. And they get, on average, I think about 240 interruptions a day, maybe more. And each interruption can potentially take up to seven minutes for them to recover their concentration. When you add all of that up, is it any wonder that people are spending 14, 16, 17 hours a day at work because they're having to do all of their work out of hours after they've been interrupted and they've done other people's work through upward delegation. So, Tony, taking this a little bit further then, you mentioned that managers need to stop yelling at their people and enabling them. By enablement, are you talking about training them and getting them to do the basics well consistently, or are you talking about technology? So training is part of enablement, but you know what we all know is that any form of training course on its own does not really affect change. There's lots of pieces of, of enablement. The first thing is you need sales leaders, not sales managers, who'll lead by example and will coach. So yes, a sales manager's job, sales leader's job is to remove roadblocks and meet the expectations, the endless expectations of those <laughs> above them but they need to equip their people to be successful. And equipping people 
obviously has multiple dimensions to it. So, you know, the first thing is you can't really change someone's personality. So they need to hire the right people, amiable personalities who avoid conflict, aren't wired to set goals, uh, don't like to put any form of tension into anything. Those people are not wired for business development. So in my view, they shouldn't be in the role. They're wonderful human beings, but they shouldn't be in a business development role. Agreed. You've got to hire the right people. That means they've got to have the right personality. They've got to have high IQ. They've got to have high EQ. So they've got to understand themselves and others well and how they interact. But increasingly today, we all need high TQ. We need high technical quotient because nobody can be successful at driving the level of effective activity that they need to unless they can leverage technology well. And again, it staggers me how many managers will give their people, for example, LinkedIn's sales navigator product. You sit down with a person to watch them use it and they have no idea how to create the most basic safe searches or run the filters to go and find the right kind of people in a city if they're planning a trip. So sales navigator is good for monitoring trigger events and good for research. But there's all kinds of tech, you know, there's sales intelligence tools that will source mobile phone numbers, email addresses. There's all kinds of platforms that'll give us early signal signs of where opportunity could be. So so that's the first bit. Then the other thing is that the sales leader needs to make sure that there's good methodology and process around how they sell. So most companies have got some sort of methodology, playbook, tools, templates, They need to actually make sure that people use it, including the CRM, and they need to make sure the CRM as a technology is being implemented in a way where it enables process rather than the worst form of CRM, which is just a contacts database and a manage up forecast tool that no one believes. So once they've done all of that, they then obviously work with people in culture and marketing to make sure that sales and marketing comes together around these things like buyer personas by making sure that sellers are equipped with the right case studies and proof. Because if you're going to engage senior people, you have to have evidence and proof of the sort of results that you've helped others like them achieve. And that's often a very big hole in most organizations as they seek to go to market. And then with enablement, yes, you'll do some training. You know, that's what I was doing in London week before last and India last week. I do a lot of that. But what I say is it's up to the sales manager to run a sustained phase after a sales workshop clinical training program where you're drift feeding content, you're holding people to account for honing their scripts, for making the calls, for developing the skills. So if you can reinforce in that sustained phase, bring all of what I've just talked about together, now you're on the path to sales enablement. And you can't really do sales enablement today unless it's a blended classroom and online and in a way that supports mobile apps, you know, so that people can digest content in a very snackable way where you're also testing them along the way. You make so many great points there. And one of the things that I see too often is that training is done by feeding people from a fire hose on a one or two day boot camp. And then there is little or no re- ongoing reinforcement afterwards to turn those skills, those lessons into skills and those skills into habits. Why is it that managers spend so little time coaching? Well, there's a few reasons. The least secure management position in companies around the world is the sales management position. Even if you look at the very senior sales leader, if you look at the CEO's first line of direct reports that sit around the boardroom table once a week with the CEO, 
the least secure person sitting around that table is the head of sales. Average tenure is about 24 months. The less most secure person at the table is the head of marketing. And what's been increasingly happening is organizations have been culling the herd of sales management ranks and getting managers to manage more and more people. And on top of that, they layer these insane levels of reporting expectations and cadence calls, especially US companies at the end of the quarter, every day, you know, going round and round the same boy in sort of sailing parlance, (laughs) doing these cadence calls about deals they talked about, you know, less than 24 hours ago where nothing's changed. So they impose these insane reporting requirements. They spread them very thin with the number of people that they're managing, and then they bury them in process. So the process of getting, you know, comp plans approved and rolled out to people, often the sales manager is onto it in a timely way, but the burdens internally to get it all approved are just insane. It's, you know, the year's kind of a third over before comp plans are rolled over. They're things that just consume so much waste and energy of a sales leader. So they're spread thin, lots and lots of, of reporting requirements, and they get buried in process. So the best organizations I see out there are making sure sales managers don't have too many people and they're making sure that their sales leaders spend two-thirds of their time out in the field with their people. What we saw when we were writing Making Channel Sales Work is that same problem in the channel, that what they tended to do was go out and recruit a land army of partners instead of building a special forces unit. And they spend very little time out in the field helping the salespeople get deals over the line, midwifing deals, coaching. And the same problem occurs in direct sales where you have way too many reports and you spend so much of your time trying to manage the numbers, which again is a myth. You cannot manage the numbers. The numbers are a byproduct of your behavior. The only thing you can manage is behavior. And net result of that is that you see an awful lot of people focused on trying to satisfy the audit function rather than on focusing on the right end of the problem, which is serving the customer, serving their salespeople. And I think there's a serious lack of understanding around service and what it actually means. What you've said is bang on. There's an awesome book I'd encourage anybody listening to this to buy and read. The title of the book is Cracking the Sales Management Code. And the author is Jason Jordan, a good friend of mine out of the States. And Marcus, he agrees with you. You cannot manage revenue. All you can manage is the activities that feed into the objectives that then create the revenue. So what a manager needs to do is reverse engineer everybody's numbers. (laughs) So they need to say, okay, so for this person to make their number, they're going to need this degree of pipeline. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're going to need to make sure that they're time effective by working in verticals and understanding personas. So, you know, in order for them to hit this number, they're going to need, for example, three to five times qualified pipeline coverage against that number. For them to get that pipeline coverage, they're going to need to execute these kinds of activities. There's a lag, so they're going to need to front-end activities very heavily. So, you know, they obviously need to skew the level of activity, but make sure people don't fall into the trap of stopping input activities when they start to get revenue success because that creates those horrible peaks and troughs. And then obviously coach them so that they're executing those activities the right way. You and I absolutely agree, and that's what people need to do. And I've spent a lot of time in my life earlier in my sales career managing channels in the, in the IT industry, and I definitely agree with you. That 
it's a thing a lot of vendors don't realize or startups don't realize is that a channel will almost never build a new market for you. You have to go build it yourself and then channels become fulfillment and create leverage once you've established momentum. Now, that's kind of an awful reality because you incur the costs of a direct selling business and the margins of a channel business, but it's just the brutal truth of how that works. And if you want to get mind share of channel partners, again, the brutal truth is you need to bring them opportunities. So even channel salespeople need to be good at finding opportunity, taking it to the right partner and earning joint business planning sessions where the partner will start to share their install base and where the cross sell upsell opportunities are. You earn that by starting to take them good quality opportunities yourself. Absolutely. You have to build trust. The currency of channel sales is trust and influence. And unless you're putting deals their way, unless you're putting money in their back, they're going to go dark on you because they're in business for their reasons, not your reasons. In the same way that salespeople, managers wake up to this, are selling for their reasons, not your reasons. And they're motivated by what they're motivated by not what you're motivated by or what you think they should be motivated by. And one of the things that I'm painfully conscious of, I can honestly say maybe five managers in my entire working life when I ask this question. So Tony, what are the individual personal motivations of your salespeople could actually give me an answer? They they have no idea. And isn't it interesting because we talked earlier about buyer expectations, know me, well, that's your employee's expectation. You know, if you want me to be loyal and motivated, I expect you to know me. Absolutely. I thought your point about knowing and personalizing and making sure that you're anticipating what they consider is important is just as critical when you're dealing with your own salespeople. If they don't see you as a leader, and bear in mind, most people's understanding of what leadership is, I think, is skewed. Most leaders, the most successful leaders, aren't necessarily the ones out in the the thick of the battle right at the front. They do go out there occasionally, but what they're doing all the time is they're anticipating. And a friend of mine, Sam Sethi, just qualified out of Sandhurst, and his commanding officer made him stand with his nose to a map. And he said, Sam, now you're a private. Take a step back. Now you're a sergeant. Now take another step back. You're a captain all the way to the other end of the room. And there he was being the general. And I think one of the challenges here is that too often management is stuck with their nose against the map because they're panicking, they're putting out fires, they're spending all of their time on the wrong end of the problem. They're tied up in reporting. And what they need to be is much more strategic. They need to be leading. And leading doesn't mean that you're the one at the coalface all the time. Because I think what tends to happen, and this is a major bugbear I have, is that when you become a manager, your job is to let go of your accounts. I think managers who carry a bag themselves cannot possibly be focused on the right end of their job, which is hire the best people and get the best out of them. Because if you're carrying a quota, that's where your attention will be until that quota is hit. Your thoughts? That's especially true when the manager who's also got their own personal quota, so they're a player coach. Yeah. What you just described is especially true when their own sellers that work for them perceive that their manager is also competing with them for the good deals. Yeah, so they're certainly very problematic. 
I absolutely agree with you. And players, managers need to get out in the field at the coal face, but they mustn't rescue people and do their jobs for them either. If it makes sense, Mark, because I might, I might talk about a lens that I use. I think people might find this helpful. Please. A lens I use to help people decide who belongs in their team. Because the thing I found, and this is a <laughs> sort of confession, is no matter how good I thought I was at hiring salespeople in all of my roles over the years in senior leadership positions, I found I would still get it wrong anywhere from 20% or a third of the time with salespeople. It's just incredibly tough hiring the right people in sales. Yeah. But the important thing is if you make a mistake, you've got to recognize it quickly and get on with um, moving that person on. Hire slow, fire fast. Yeah, exactly. Now, people say all that, but the truth is it really happens that way because Uh everyone's desperate to hit their number and get people on board. And salespeople are good at playing the game of presenting a facade that gets them the role and then you find out the real person later. So... So what I sort of say to managers is this, when you have a look at your team, you know, obviously you assess performance and you give people time to ramp up to performance, but the performance thing is easy. But then there's three C's, three things that begin with the letter C and they're competence, commitment, and cultural fit. So just maybe unpack this a little. So when you have a look at someone and you think, you know what, do I need to move them on? Do I hang in there with them? What do I really do? You think, okay, so they're not performing. And then you go, okay, so are they competent? Can they actually do what's needed? In this role, you've got to be able to go and carry a conversation with the CFO of a manufacturing business. You might go a giant manufacturing business or small to medium manufacturing businesses, whatever it is. You think, well, can they carry the conversation? Are they intelligent? Are they able to talk the language of leaders? Have they got the level of confidence and gravitas? You know, are they qualified? So are they competent? And if you go, well, yes, they are, you go, great, okay, well, are they committed? So they're not making their numbers, but are they in here early every morning on the phone, building pipeline, working hard? Are they going the extra mile with all of those inputs to build pipeline? And if you go, well, yes, they are, then the next thing is, okay, are they a cultural fit? Right? So do they have a positive attitude in the team? And are they aligned with the values that we expect inside the business? And the reality is, if the answer to any two of those four questions, performance, competence, commitment, cultural fit, if the answer to any two of those is negative, they need to go. But if only one of them is negative, then you hang in there with them and try and move the needle. And I agree with you. You you alluded to this earlier in the conversation. The first diagnostic tool that any sales leader should use when they're evaluating people in their team is a mirror. Am I, as the leader, doing the things I need to be doing to set them up for success? And only then have you earned the right to fire people. But the reality is, is that holding on to the wrong person for too long, in my view, is the number one mistake that I see sales leaders make all over the world. And very few sales leaders understand how expensive and damaging the mistake is. And I'll I'll just give you an example. Imagine you're in a software business and you've got a rep that carries a $2 million number. That's a very low number. Let's just imagine that it's $2 million. If you hire the wrong person, the first thing that just happened is this. You just lost a million dollars of revenue as the sales leader. You just lost a million dollars of revenue Uh because they're never going to ramp up to performance. And then you're going to have to offboard them which makes that even worse. And then you've got to onboard their replacement, which takes time. 
So you've lost, you know, half a year of quota straight away by hiring the wrong person. Yeah. The next thing that happened is you just damaged your personal brand with your boss because they expect that you're able to do this and they think, hang on, you can't even hire salespeople. You can't even hire the right people. Now they're worried about you. You've damaged your own productivity because the process of trying to ramp someone who can't do the job and then manage them out and then hire another person, choose up huge cycles of time. It's very negative. It can turn toxic, burns a lot of emotional energy as well. It adds to your stress levels. And the last thing that goes on is you damage the company's brand because your channel partners or potential clients or customers are going, what's wrong with your business? All of these different people keep turning up or calling me. So it's cost you a million dollars of revenue. You've lost at least six to 15 months of time Uh and all of that other collateral damage. So sooner, and I agree, be super cautious hiring someone in. One of the common mistakes I made when I hired people is I did not adequately test whether they could write. We live in an era today where, in my view, if you can't write, you can't sell because proposals, emails, LinkedIn, the digital footprint that you create, your digital brand, depends on how well you can write. I know some people go, oh, I just, you know, I send video mails now. Who needs to write? You have to be able to write. It's super important. So I didn't do that well. So now I make sure I give people an exercise where they get real little time and get them to basically write an executive summary. Well, I would take this even further, Tony. The received wisdom from DICE, which is an employment organization in the UK, is a wrong hire will cost you five times salary. If you get away that cheaply, then frankly, the angels are smiling on you. You mentioned the loss of revenue because of underperformance. But then there's the lifetime value of all those customers who've been gifted to the competition because they left the door open. There's the reputation damage. There's the referrals that come off it, the upsells, the cross-sells. My calculation is that if you get away with less than 25 to 35 times salary, you're lucky. I definitely agree with that. The question you need to ask is, is he better than an empty chair? And (laughs) often, to be honest, the answer is no. What passes for average in sales is depressingly poor. And I'm on a mission, and I'm pretty sure you are as well. Sales is a force for good. And it is not only the oldest profession, but also a vitally important one. My sense is that up to 80% of what I would term order takers, or if they're really bad negotiators, will be replaced by the likes of Siri and Alexa over the next 10 years. Genuine professional salesmanship, that's not going away in any hurry because people still want to engage. They want to have relationships. And more importantly, the salesperson needs to be able to ask insightful questions that help the prospect see their world through a different lens, see their problem through a different lens. And too often, and this is where management really comes into its own, I believe managers have four lines on their job description. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure that they have the resources necessary to do their job well every day, and then protect your good salespeople from bad salespeople and bad management. Pretty much everything else on a manager's job description is lipstick on a pig. Yeah, Marcus, that's great advice for people. I love that. Taking the conversation a little bit further then, I know that it's really important that 
we look at increasing conversion rates. But often, in my experience, that is limited by the salesperson's belief systems. What are the beliefs that cause salespeople to sabotage themselves in sales? So the first thing is, uh, I too, like you, believe that selling uh, can and should be a noble profession. And my definition of selling is that it's all about making a positive difference in the life of the customer, both professionally and uh, personally. And the best salespeople are consultative, which is what you just talked about. So they're all about helping the client achieve a far better future state. So the first thing is you need to believe that that's what you're all about. You're not about selling somebody something they don't really need, want, nor can afford. (laughs) That's just being unethical. You need to believe in the intrinsic value of what you offer and then the extrinsic value that you bring to that sales environment. So so believe in the company and the product, that it does make a positive difference. And then the way you go and engage the client, make that the biggest point of difference right? as you go to market uh, for your company. So then you need to be able to carry the conversation. So one of the reasons that people don't get on the phone and drive enough outbound is they're scared to death. So, you know, they treat the phone like it's covered in spiders. Yeah. A, because they fear rejection. Well, you know, they just need to get over that. (laughs) Yeah. It's like... Well, it's not personal. Rejection isn't personal when you're making a cold call. They're rejecting your terrible call or your offer. It's not the personal rejection. And the way your sellers need to work is they don't make cold calls, they make warm calls because they their ICP and buyer personas and they identify an attribute or a trigger event or they find a common connection. So they warm things up. But they, the way they need to feel is that they love a genuine no. Because a genuine no means that they, the seller, don't live in false hope and don't waste time. And they're not going to annoy anybody by persisting where there's legitimately no interest. So if it's a real no that they embrace it, that's great. But if they feel I'm genuinely helping someone, like, so for example, one of my biggest clients I work with is Salesforce, the CRM company. The thing I say to their sellers is the way you need to feel is that the sales leader that you're trying to get to, you need to feel that they are the least secure person sitting around the boardroom table with their boss, the CEO, average tenure is two years, and that they have zero chance, no chance, zip, of being successful in driving process within their sales organization without a CRM system. They need a process for execution. They've got no chance of giving their boss a forecast that the boss believes if they don't have Salesforce. They've got no chance of delivering great end-to-end customer experience without having a system like Salesforce. They've got no chance as an organization of bringing sales, marketing, and service and support together to support buyer journey and customer lifecycle without Salesforce. So if you really believe that, you're saving their career, you're preventing them getting fired, you're helping them be more successful and all of their people to be more successful. So what's holding you back? Get on the phone and call them. And if they say, we've just implemented Microsoft Dynamics and we've signed up to a five-year contract, that's a legitimate no. (laughs) You say, great, and then you go move on. There's nothing wrong with that. If they go, no, no, we're fine, we manage everything in spreadsheets. Well, you're not fine if you're managing it in spreadsheets, right? So they need to go and have a conversation. So, so the first thing is you need a foundation of genuine belief in what your company offers and then a genuine belief in the value that you can bring in a conversation. You need to feel that, look, whether they buy anything from me or not, they will get some insights out of the conversation that will help inform their own strategy, no matter what they decide to do. So it's almost like they should really be paying me for my consulting, but I'm happy to go have the conversation with them. 
then they need to drive the right level of activity. That's what's really behind the failure. One of the things that we teach is that your credibility comes from the questions that you ask, not the information that you give. And the people I was referring to earlier in terms of order takers are the ones that are basically brochures in suits. The best salespeople I have ever met ask tough, uncomfortable, demanding, insightful questions that help the prospect to see their world through a very different lens, to recognize that while they think they're well, they're not, to see what's possible. But questioning is so atrociously taught. I remember when I first started out (laughs) back in the dark ages, I was taught, ask open questions and don't ask closed questions unless you're going for the close and never ask why questions. Those three bits of advice were the worst bits of advice I have ever been given. Why questions are the best questions to ask. Closed questions are massively powerful because they're directional. And what they allow you to do is have the prospect funnel themselves down to a point where they're ready to make a decision. But the problem is that most salespeople are terrified of hearing a no because they don't understand how to sell past it. 80% of my income comes after someone has said no to me. Now, that was a real revelation for me. But I remember in the first 17 years of my career, leaving 16.7 million pounds worth of commission on the table, largely because I didn't understand how buyers control the sales process and I didn't understand how to ask questions. So what advice would you give to managers in terms of helping their salespeople get really proficient at asking powerful, insightful and challenging questions? Firstly, just to support what you're saying, you and I know that there's only one time in human history where there's been proper PhD university grade research done into selling and it was Neil Rackham in the 1980s. Yep. So he was seeking to prove the hypothesis that the best sellers asked open questions and they would be more successful than sellers who asked closed questions. He was unable to prove that. What he discovered instead was that the top 10% of sales performers speak only one third as much as the bottom 90%. Absolutely. (laughs) Obviously, the way that you earn doing far less talking is you ask great questions. And then he obviously discovered there were four types of questions, which was his spin framework that he came up with. But the interesting thing to me is if you look at advice for managers to their salespeople, I'll give it in two contexts. When a lead comes to us, so we get some kind of lead, often the buyer, not often, always the buyer is in their 99 question mode. You know, does your product do this? Do you do that? How much? And you need to not annoy the prospect. You say, hey, look, absolutely, I'll provide all that information for you. And then you need to ask two questions. You then need to say, but do you mind if I ask, what's happened inside your organization that's caused you to think that you need a system like this? And then once they've answered that, you then ask, what kind of results do you need to get to justify the investment? So what do you think is going to be materially different inside the business? once this is in place. Because in essence, what you're getting to is the business case. And what I find with a lot of sellers is they get into their basic bant mode. You know, do you have budget? Can you make the buying decision? Is there a real need? What's your timeline to buy? But often when leads come to us, they they don't have enough money anyway. So you want to go help them build a business case, which is why I ask those two questions. So that's incredibly important. And if you're prospecting and building pipeline, What you want to do is help them build the business case for change. 
And in the process of doing that, you make sure it's funded properly and you create in the client's interests some hardwired bias to what you do well as a particular vendor or solution provider. What about role play? Because one thing I hear often is how do you go about role playing with your people? And well, my people don't like role play. As part of the interview process, I always like to build in two or three role plays because I want to position it that role play is going to be an integral part of the job. But why is it managers shy away from it? Well, no one likes role plays and role plays are harder than a real world conversation. I love so, them. Well, <laughs> you're rare. And, I, and by the way, I make sure I role plays when I run my, run my programs as well. I make sure someone role plays in a job interview. So we'll give them a brief, you know, and we'll, we'll yeah. say, how, how, how would you position the company? So, but the thing I love is getting people to prospect with each other. You know, when someone's going to try and build pipeline or do some sort of, you know, sales call, they'll skulk off into a small room somewhere to do the call. You know, my, my view mm-hmm. is get people phoning in front of each other on the floor so they can learn from each other. The managers sitting with their people, they're hearing. What's happening is not so much artificial role plays, but real world conversations that we're listening to and we provide feedback with. So that's actually what's most effective, you know, in my view. And Getting people to sort of script what they're going to say uh, is really important. Sort out their value narrative. So I gave you that example earlier in this particular podcast of if you're trying to get to me, hey, Tony, I've got some ideas on how you can monetize your IP and get away from all that time and travel for money, make money while you're asleep. And then you'd have a question, you know, how, how much of your revenue today is passive versus, you know, you're going and speaking at places and delivering training, you know, or doing consulting. Yeah. So you've got a double-edged hypothesis of value, you know, your value narrative, your point of view for the person, and you've got a good question you ask that gets them thinking. Because one of the powerful things about questions is it addresses this really important thing that people are only truly motivated by something that they themselves discover. If you ask the right questions, the buyer discovers that this is actually important. There's actually a serious business case for doing something here. You know, allowing the status quo to prevail is something that I shouldn't do on a sleep at the wheel in my role if I allow that. That's why questions are so powerful. I think this is really key because you can't convince anyone to buy anything ever. They have to discover why they want it for themselves. And there's a fantastically powerful medical maxim, which is prescription before diagnosis (laughs) is malpractice. And Most salespeople are guilty of selling malpractice because they go in and they try and feature and benefit the poor beggars to death and they prescribe the solution before they've diagnosed what the cause is. And if you don't get to the root cause of your prospect's problem, that is mis-selling. You see this a lot in media. I've done years and years of work in media where they take the brief that the prospect brings them and then they pitch to that brief but they don't really ever get under the skin of the brief and understand why they've been given that brief. And the problem the prospect brings you is never the real problem. And to get to the real problem, you have to reverse them. You have to ask them why three or more times. When I first started doing a Sandler, I used to count my reverses on my fingers under the table. And you know, I'd have to reverse up to 27 times. I was that lacking in proficiency. But in my experience, if you go three to five, maybe seven whys deep, you'll get to the real problem. And the real problem is almost never the one that they give you in the RFP or the tender document. It's almost never the one that they tell you. Weak or empty pipeline, not closing enough, discounting, 
all of these are symptoms. And if you try and fix the symptom, then you're going to end up not fixing the real problem. And then the problem will come back and you're only just marching time till you get fired and replaced by someone equally incompetent. So I think role play has its place in that you need to practice. And you absolutely made the point that it's always harder in role play than it is in the real thing, Mm. which is why I think it's necessary to do it because nothing the prospect throws at you is going to be as bad as your partner in a role play throwing the worst 12 prospects he or she has ever had rolled into (laughs) one after having had a bad night's sleep and indigestion. And the key here is to practice deliberately, intentionally to improve. And you kind of touched on this earlier on as well, which is that you need to learn from your mistakes. You've got to capture your lessons. So I teach the half a percent rule. Improve by half a percent a day by capturing three lessons a day and then implementing Mm -hmm. them and sharing them and make sure you teach at least one of them within 24 hours. Now, if you compound $100 at half a percent per day, reinvest it all, over a 270 working day year, you get $373 back. So you get an almost threefold improvement in performance just by implementing a little and often at half a percent a day. And role play, lesson capture, sharing the information is really key. And this is where I think a manager's role really comes into its own as well. It's creating that cadence of responsibility where everybody every day is responsible for committing to their three basic goals a day, reporting on how they did against their goals yesterday, committing to making up any gaps, not moving the goalpost, but making sure that they continue to hit those goals and make up any shortfalls, capture any lessons and share them amongst the team because a rising tide raises all boats. And I think that's where managers are sadly deficient because they allow things like the daily huddle they allow coaching. They allow things to slip. And I think one of my favorite maxims is you deserve what you tolerate. What do you see managers tolerating that they absolutely shouldn't? The biggest thing they tolerate, sorry, is, is lack of effective activity. They allow people to deprioritize pipeline building. That's the thing that every seller has to do every day of their life. They allow themselves, we're responding to a tender, we don't have time. You know, or I've got all these deals I'm trying to close, I don't have time. So the biggest weakness is they don't drive the daily cadence of effective activity with time blocking for people. Very fair point. I mean, what I always teach my clients is five unique effective conversations per day without fail. Make the dials, somehow get through to the decision maker, deliver a contract that says, I'm going to explain in 30 seconds why I'm calling, and then you can make a decision, yes or no, that we talk for two more minutes. If you do that consistently five times a day, odds are in almost every professional services business, software business, training business, that you will hit your quota because you need to make sure the top of the funnel is full with quality prospects and that you are moving enough opportunities with sufficient velocity through it so that you have three to 500% more at the qualified moving to closable stage than you need in order to hit your quota at any one time. If you do those three leading indicators and you do not tolerate any deviation from that, then chances are the majority, if not all of your salespeople, will not only hit quota, but your forecast will be between half and 5% variance from actual 
every single month. And that gives managers clarity and certainty, which is, again, what I think most managers want. They want to know for sure that Tony is going to hit his number because then they can plan. What they hate is that variance because that makes their job increasingly untenable and very unstable. So true, Marcus. That is gold. All of that advice. That's great. Thank you. Okay, so let's move on to the final stage, which is retaining and growing clients. Biggest mistake I see people making is they go for the vanity metrics of number of dials and number of first meetings, number of proposals, but also they go for net new logos rather than expanding and growing their existing accounts. And so they don't focus on loving their customers to death expanding them because it costs, I think the latest research I saw that it costs 12 to 25 times more to win a new logo account than it does to sell to an existing customer. And you mentioned that single highest hidden cost is wrong highest. Second highest hidden cost is hidden cost of sale. And the third highest hidden cost is cost of RFPs and tenders. If you're not retaining and growing your existing accounts, you're incurring needless cost, which eats into your bottom line. And what you keep matters more than what you make. So what advice would you give to sales leaders and business leaders about emphasizing retention and growth? Yeah, so we all know that customer churn in a business is a horrible cancer. And all of those stats you just talked about are all dead true. So it's far cheaper, it's far more cost effective to retain and grow clients than have some leaky bucket where you're trying to fill it up from the top all the time with new clients. And the other thing is happy clients are advocates for us in the marketplace. Absolutely. I believe the smartest go-to-market strategy is one where clients are your advocates. If you have negative customers out there, they do untold damage and often you never really find out that they were doing it, but it nevertheless damages results. So what every company needs to be is they need to have a customer success manager or account manager for their accounts. Obviously, the clients have got to be big enough to fund that. So you have to stratify your client base and tier them. You then need to get them into quadrants, you know, and focus on the quadrants that have the highest growth potential. So big-ish customers that can become huge customers is where we want to focus. And then what we need to do is to make sure that our customer success or account manager in those accounts truly knows their customer. So they understand the customer's goals what the customer strategies are to achieve those goals, and then what the initiatives are going on inside the business around each of those strategies. And where we as an organization can then go and align, they need to map the beyond the org charts. They need to get hold of org charts because if they're a, a trusted supplier partner and we've got a coach in there, we should get org charts. But Absolutely. beyond the organization charts, we need to map the power base of the real political and economic power structure in the organization and broaden and elevate our relationships inside the account and go and uncover opportunity and go and sell against it. So the more a client invests with us, the stickier we become, the more strongly incumbent that we are, the harder it is for a competitor to actually take them away from us. That's kind of my advice in a nutshell around uh, retaining and growing clients. One of the things that we teach is that an enterprise account is a marketplace. It's not just an opportunity to transact once. There's all of their parent companies, sister companies, joint venture companies, all of their alumni, every region, every vertical operation, every new product range, whatever. Every one of those represents a growth opportunity. And too often, salespeople think that they have an account. And what they haven't really got is an advocacy strategy. 
if you do not have at least five rock-solid, rip-roaring, raving fans within an account, chances are you're incredibly vulnerable to predation or a change in senior management within the client account coming in and saying, you know, I'm bringing my people in. And so simple stuff. Every 90 days, look at your advocacy base. Make sure that you have three to five really rock-solid raving fans in key positions of influence and power within yeah. each of the divisions. Make sure that you're mapping what's going on, that you have relationship. I and mean, one of the things that we have a tool called the Client-Centric Satisfaction Tool, and it goes in conjunction with a quarterly value review. Now, the Client-Centric Satisfaction Tool is a contract that you establish between you and your customer when you make that initial sale of how they will hold you to account based on five key factors that they consider to be critically important to serving your relationship with them. And they will weight it, and then they will rate you every three months. And in the quarterly value review, instead of the QBR, which is normally every three months we come in, we set out our stall, and we pitch more rubbish at you. The quarterly value review is we work out what's working within the relationship, what isn't, what we have to reset, what have we managed to progress, what haven't we, where are we falling short, where are you as the customer falling short, and how do we improve it so you develop a partnership. And so often this is overlooked because people are afraid of having the accountability conversation with their customer. But in not doing that, I believe that they, make, they expose themselves to being in a very unstable position. I think great selling requires great levels of vulnerability. You have mm. to be willing to be, put yourself into a position where you may get hurt. You have to be ready to ask the question, even though you're terrified you might get the answer that you were hoping you wouldn't. That takes courage. And I think courage is lacking in sales. There are many out there who are doing it, but the vast majority are not. And they're afraid of asking inviting answers to the difficult question. They're afraid of putting their head on the block and saying, okay, I'm here, give it to me. Give it to me with both barrels. And as a result of that, they're missing out on enormous amounts of opportunity because they're leaving money on the table because people just think, well, you know, this relationship hasn't really been that impressive. I haven't got what I was expecting. I'm going to go to market. And then you end up in a terrible situation where basically you're having to go out and hunt for new business all the time. To me, that strikes me as madness. I agree with you, Marcus, 100%. Let me ask you two parting questions then. Who do you read? Who do you follow that you recommend other people read and follow? I'm a big fan of Jason Jordan. So that's Cracking the Sales Management Code. Cracking the Sales Management Code is a great book. For those listening to this, if you want to have your brain scrambled, <laughs> there's an awesome book by a guy called Lee Bartlett, who's a colleague of yours in the UK. The book is called The Number One Bestseller. Right. Lee might be a guy to get on, but Lee's been at the platinum-tipped end of the spear in selling for big corporate enterprise selling. It's very eye-opening when he talks about the brutality of what it takes to be successful in big enterprise selling. Yep. He'd be an interesting guy for you to interview on the podcast. He's certainly fantastic. Excellent. I'm going to be terribly cheeky and ask for a favor. If I approach Lee Bartlett and Jason Jordan, may I use your name saying that you recommended them? Yeah, you can. 
Fabulous. Okay, now this is a slightly cheeky question. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot 23-year-old Tony, what bit of golden advice would you give him to avoid acts of idiocy and self-sabotage? And I've got to tell you, boy, there was a lot of self-sabotage and idiocy (laughs) when I first got into selling at age 25. Yeah. So the advice is, hey, Tony, it's not about you. It's all about the customer. It's all about the customer. Absolutely. And don't take yourself so seriously. You know, I interviewed Deb Calvert, Leanne Hobson, and a bunch of other people. And each time, virtually everyone who's right at the top of their game made it. Don't take yourself so seriously. The thing about the customer, absolutely. It's absolutely about them. You are not important in the sale. At best, if you walk out of their office and you get squashed by the number 73 bus, they'll look out and they'll say, oh no, <laughs> Tony's going to make me late. So, Tony Hughes, thank you so much. This has been massively inspiring, but also packed full of really useful advice. How can people get hold of you? Yes, Marcus, I've actually published, believe it or not, 500 articles on LinkedIn in the last five years or so. So connect with me in LinkedIn. I'm a node in the network is what LinkedIn tell me. So anyone in sales should connect to me. I open up the database for them. So in LinkedIn and my personal website is tonyhughes.com.au and uh, I won't even give you my sales methodology website because Sandal is an awesome sales methodology. You can do that. All sales methodologies that work are worthwhile. So how can they get hold of that? That's rsvpselling.com. Fabulous. Tony Hughes, absolute pleasure. I hope to do this again sometime soon. And once again, thank you very much. Thanks, Marcus. I really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. So this is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor Podcast signing off. Happy selling. If you believe that you would be a great guest on this podcast, please contact me, mkauke at sander.com. If there are, you have any questions that you would like me to address, either through my content, through my network, or through the podcast, then please get in touch and connect with me on LinkedIn. So it's Marcus Kauke signing off. Have a great week. Go off and pay attention to your customer, not yourself. Bye-bye.